to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ruthless Variety program. It's a good Tuesday to you. Uh, listen, folks, we've got a big show here for you. It is. I love how we started it with Kamala talking nonsense about electric cars. She's like, oh, you know, usually you can hear the guzzling sounds. Like, what the, what the hell are you talking about, lady? Well, I, it's like she was exploring the miracle of electricity in front of a public crowd. Yeah. She's like, right, oh. so it's electric car. Right, oh, it's smaller fumes. When I when I drive a car, I I don't you know I'm not like rolling coal. I don't typically <laughs> smell the cars. I I don't hear any guzzling sound when I'm. What, know, what I what I love about it is like she's trying so hard to be like what she thinks a normal person would say. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. Totally. it's like Kamala. She gets a software update. It's like Kamala. Try to be personable. She's like, I like the car sounds. I can smell them. <laughs> Difference the between hell? gas and electricity. No smell. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, she knows she's in a tough spot. Her her staff is like quitting by the droves. Everyone's writing articles about how like weird and unlikable she is. Like who can relate to Kamala Harris? You can, can anyone in America be like, you know what? I'm just like a crazy weird person. But yes, it's such great content. To me. It is. It's absolutely great. I think content. she's got. At some point, we'll have to tabulate it up. But she's got to be the clubhouse leader in terms of the lead here on Ruthless, isn't she? I mean, she's up there. I think so. And it's great because it's like, okay, so you've got Biden, who is just like basically, I mean, on a machine. Like <laughs> they unplug the poor guy. Like they'll they'll occasionally trot him out in in front of a microphone. He'll say something stupid, like, uh, Joe. I, I mean, he's still alive. He's got a pulse, folks. Technically. And then what's their next option? Kamala? Yikes. Yikes. Not good. Not good. All right. So a couple of announcements here off the top. Uh, Michael, you've done it again. You pressed the internet button successfully. Let's go. And you now have a ruthless beanie for us. Yeah. You know, it's winter. It's getting chilly out there. So, um, yeah, there's a ruthless beanie in the store now. It's a good-looking beanie. It's nice. You know, black and white works real well on a nice beanie. Well, I had a, I had a friend, Sarah, back where I grew up, who, who texted me and said, do you guys have any winter wear? Do you have any hats? And we talked about it a little bit. And you thought, of course we could put together a beanie. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I think the folks are going to like it. All you got to do is go to store.ruthlesspodcast.com. It's right there at the top. It's good. It's really, really. I'm good. like literally on the page ordering my beanie. Yeah, no, I speak. So keep keep talking while I punch in like my information. I've ordered <laughs> one as well. I've ordered one as well. Um, look, we got to get to some serious stuff here off the top. Uh, undoubtedly, you all are aware of the tornadoes that ripped through the center of this country, Kentucky in particular, uh, in the middle of the night, which is just horrifying. The fact that you could get the the those size of these storms in the middle of the night with basically no warning just absolutely turning these towns into matchsticks yeah essentially it was yeah I, I saw some of that drone footage of like um you know a a 
a main street sort of, and then it sort of zooms out to the top of the town. And it is, like you said, matchsticks. Yeah. You know, everything's just gone. Every house gone. Just gone. And in the middle of the night without any sort of preparation or warning, it's just a really scary situation. And, you know, the scope of this disaster is massive. It went through over 200 miles. It just, it just turned all these towns uh, upside down. We are going to do, I think for Thursday's episode, I think we are in the process of doing our due diligence on a couple of different funds that yes. we will help. And I, I know all of us will contribute to in order to, to help people down there. Now, there's a lot of great stuff. You know, I mean, Red Cross, I know that the there's an official government page down in Kentucky that I saw Daniel Cameron tweeting out. I'm sure all those are great. We're going to uh, do our own due diligence and find something that we know that this money goes directly to the people who need it most, and we'll get it out to you all, because I know I've gotten some requests from you about uh, which funds you should be supporting. So we will do that for Thursday's show. But in the meantime, look, these people need your prayers. Uh, if you live in the vicinity, obviously everybody needs a help, um, and they need um, everything from food and water to a place to stay. And... It's a tough time of the year for that. And, and shout out to the National Guard and all the first responders who've been out there helping with cleanup and helping, you know, the, these communities and the victims and their families, um, you know, doing the hard work that, that is just heartbreaking right now. It really is. It really is. And at this time of year, you know, look, I, I think for those of us who are, are fortunate enough to have presence under the tree and happy, healthy families, I think everybody should consider... Um, you know, an extra gift this year and make sure that we've got something for those people who've lost just about everything they can lose down in the middle of this country. Absolutely. I mean, like, the, I, I can't stress enough. The pictures, the video I saw from there, it's like nothing I've seen. It was like, you know, a bomb went off. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I saw some comments today. McConnell said uh, it was basically the worst storm he's ever seen in his lifetime in terms of Kentucky, and I, I believe it because I can't imagine what would be worse it, it was just completely devastating but um, the, the only good news i saw on twitter about it was a few like liberal psychopaths who chirped up to um, basically use this incredible loss of life and and destruction of these communities as an opportunity to like hit mcconnell and Rand paul yeah, oh, and yeah. republicans yeah. just get ratioed really? ratioed to absolute hell yeah. in fact to his credit the chair of the kentucky democratic party straight up told these people to fuck off. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Which is the greatest bipartisanship wow, yeah. you can ask for. Yeah, you know? It really is. It really is. you got to set that nonsense aside when people's lives are, are in danger. And, and to be honest with you, I, I'm also, you know, having been to a lot of these communities and know a lot of these people, it really pisses me off when I hear, you know, day one discussion about climate change. Right. And about, you know, liberal policy positions that should be executed <clears throat> to prevent these kind of things like that stop stop yeah yeah you know, yeah that, there, there's people you know they still have not recovered all the victims you know they're saying there could be more people. right there's people it's like horrific. dying underneath rubble right now it's unbelievable yeah and they're like well this is why we ought to turn the coal power pl fire plants up. right you know it's like come on man you can't do that all right let's get into the meat of the program here let's let's start with this because i know uh speaking of like uh, people mad online and being crazy. Yeah. This is a good example. Times person of the year was revealed. Yeah. Elon Musk. Thoughts? <laughs> Mixed. Um, you know, mostly positive. You know, I, I think Elon is 
a force of good. He's got, you know, the world looking up at... He's got America specifically looking up at the skies or possibilities. He named his baby like Xerox or something. <laughs> um, he's doing big things, you know, good for him. And real space, by the way. He goes real. to real space. Not that, fake space, not that, fake Bezos that, space. And that's very important. Very important to point out is he actually sends his rockets to real space and uh, creates so many jobs. In Texas, literally created a rocket city. And there's this monster rocket, the biggest rocket, you know, America or the world has ever created, bigger than the Saturn V. He's going to send that out to space, you know. Good for him. Even even though, you know, he, I guess he broke up with his girlfriend. He's like, you know what? I'm still focused on space. Me and baby Xerox, we got this. We're not, <laughs> oh, he's time person of the year, right? So yeah. he's, I mean, he's got some stuff well, going for him. My, my favorite thing about Elon Musk is uh, how confrontational he is on Twitter. Totally. I was yeah. just going to say it's the my, same. My favorite thing, uh, this is pretty recent, actually, that um, some director of like the UN, um, you know, war on poverty, or I don't know what what. Oh yeah, this it is was excellent, whatever. Excellent. You know, basically says you know if we only just taxed all the billionaires, if we had you know five billion, I don't remember the I think it was five billion dollars, yeah. we could end world hunger. Yeah, right. We could end it tomorrow if we just had this money from all these greedy billionaires. And Elon Musk quote tweets it and he says, "I will sell Tesla stock today if you can show me a plan." That's transparent. That ends world hunger if I give you five yeah. billion dollars. And the guy's like, "How about a how about a how?" Ah, yeah. The guy's no. just like backpedaling, <laughs> and he was like, "But but Elon, you should still give us money." And then Elon was like, "What's this?" And it was that like UN food program had like pedophiles running it, right. forcing children to perform sex acts yeah. for the food. Yeah. yeah. And so now and, this and guy's like, in that wow. kind of discussion. Yeah. It's like holy shit. It is. It's, I, I would like in in my wildest dreams when I'm a billionaire, I continue to be just like. A poster on Twitter and fighting on there, <laughs> right? And Elon is doing it. Dude, the somebody man on Earth gets on Twitter and fights. Somebody, and like, ha- somebody has to do it because if you listen to the mainstream media these days, you know there, there's always a bias against governments. Like there, there's a bias against these like international organizations that are as there should be the fo- as the forces of good that are always doing good in the world. Yeah, and it's like. You know, the private citizens, the billionaires, the companies who are employing millions of people who are the bad people. Right. And it's the governments that want to do the good things. Right. And and that's what tickles me so much is like, what kind of a comment is it that people are like, no, actually, you billionaires should be fixing all our problems. We give trillions of dollars to government every year and they have not solved any of these. Right. Right. And you're like, hey, bro, you know. You've built an electric car and rockets. Right. You need to solve the problems, not the people we're paying taxes. Well, and, to. That, and that's sort of my point, Smug, is like there's way less accountability for our government or for the U.N. than there is for Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. And it's like Elon Musk at least like gives people jobs. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's 100 percent true. But like for me, like it's still mixed. Personally, personally, man of the year should have been Kyle. Kyle Rittenhouse. Time man of the year. If they were being real. It's got to be man of the year, Kyle Rittenhouse. How could it not? Like, what he overcame. It's a controversial choice. He had media organizations. He had politicians, including the current president of the United States, being like, this is an evil white supremacist based on nothing. Slandered a kid. People forget this is is a a very young individual. Right. The president of the United States, elected officials, every lib with a following is like, this kid's evil. And meanwhile, like... 
you know, video evidence shows quite literally a pedophile. Well, he was, was exonerated, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's it. it. He overcame. It, it, it. I struggle with time because they make their some of their choices are designed to be provocative, mm-hmm. right? They don't actually think that somebody's redeemable or not. They just they just do it for the conversation. Like I think it's they, a rare occasion when they actually give what they believe out. Like when they made Adolf Hitler man of the year that's only like rare time that time's like oh here's what we actually believe (laughs) (laughs) but i think they did like putin right after the 2016 election if i'm not mistaken right i i think that's right i know they made trump correctly man of the year once was it was it in 2015 when he was just like steamrolling everybody i don't I, i just i'm gonna have to go back and look but it is it's always a little bit of a controversy oh they did yeah yeah in uh in 2007 uh, Putin is Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Are you serious? Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that makes sense because it's just, you know, they wanted to gin up the Russiagate stuff. Right? Yeah. It, it just, it, Wait, that was 07. That was 07. Yeah. Oh, no, that's 07. Yeah. You're right. It's not 2017. It's 07. Well, honestly. Well, they can't They can't get enough. They've gone back to the dictator's time and time again, too. I, I think everyone should recall it was Time Magazine that had that, like, article right after the election. Yeah, with the, the cover. White House. Of, like, the White House. You know, getting onion domes, and they're like, "Oh, Russia's." Oh, I remember that's that. What I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's what serious? I'm thinking about. That's yeah. what I was serious. thinking of. So I don't know. I mean, what would you, Duncan, if you had a man of the year? Like, who are you choosing here? Janice Dean. Janice Dean, the that's weather machine. Pick. Honestly, Janice Dean pick for I taking mean, her down, taking down Cuomo. Well, I mean, not just taking down Cuomo, but I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of people, she was the poster child for all of the the outrage around coronavirus right like i mean it's it's not just taking down cuomo because obviously there's a lot of stuff with with cuomo there was the mismanagement of 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 coronavirus there was you know putting the covid positive patients into nursing homes which is what you know got janice dean involved in that fight because you know her her in-laws died in those nursing homes but like you know, she 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 was fighting back against a corrupt, uh, opaque system that refused to be honest with people about mm-hmm. coronavirus. So I think that number one, number two, yeah, Cuomo, getting Cuomo out, and then you know a a tertiary benefit is also now Chris Cuomo's gone. <laughs> so I mean, think about the good that Janice Dean fighting has done. You know, uh, for yeah. America in she, government and in media, yeah, she she truly was like an angel. And and the adversity that she faced, where like now, like documents have come out about how they wanted to just smear the, her. The, yeah. The, yeah, Cuomo administration was like, "Hey, can we can we attack and smear this Janice Dean person because she's like getting traction and attacking right. us?" And 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 now we know that the Cuomo administration was hiding from the feds actual like COVID deaths. Janice Dean was the tip of the spear on all this, right? And so and, and so you know that's kind of my point is like. You know, the governor of one of the most powerful states in the country, the government, and you've got one of the most powerful, you know, people, his brother mm-hmm. in the corporate media at CNN attacking her and, and working behind the scenes to discredit her. Those two people, all the power in the world and Janice Dean won. Yeah, she won. She won. So for me, they, she, they she would be person of the year. You can't fight Sadie Hall. She's like. I mean, man, she'd beat the governor. Yeah. I guess City Hall. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. I mean, look, I struggle with this, right? Because it's there, there's something about what you've done versus who you are, what your perception is. I Even up to like two minutes ago, I'm struggling with my answer. But I think I would go with Ron DeSantis. Really? Oh, wow. 
Well, and here's why. The reason I would go with Ron DeSantis is this. During the pandemic, we had assembled this entire alternate reality mm-hmm. that was designed to attack people like Ron DeSantis on the reg for making irresponsible decisions in their eyes, leading to deaths, dismantlement, all these things. It's very, very difficult for a public official, particularly in a state that's kind of a purple state like Florida, mm-hmm. to just stay the course, right. right? And just to do what you think is right over a period of time. And if it really works out, man, that just deserves a lot more praise than he's ever going to get, like, right? Like if you think about it, so looking at all the data we have on COVID, it affects and and, and, and by a margin kills the elderly by far more than any other population, any other demographic segment. And and DeSantis is like, okay, I'm looking at this data. Um, we should make a priority, uh, you know, immunizing the elderly, yeah, and, and safeguarding them. And he gets attacked by the media for doing that. Totally. Right? And he and he got attacked by the media for pushing monoclonal antibodies. That's right. And that's right? Kind of, that's where I was. Really that's the other thing. And, and you're absolutely right. It's like you know they attacked him in on seasonality of COVID. They 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 attacked yep. him saying like, yep. look. Oh wow, you know Florida's going through a real rough patch right now, and now we're seeing the inverse across like the Michigan Northeast. Michigan right now right. is putting up record and nobody's saying that. Nobody's talking nobody's about, talking about it. Whitmer's doing no. a terrible job, and 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 now they've uh, you know the Biden administration is basically nationalizing the distribution of of these monoclonal antibodies, yep. and and six months ago they're all attacking Ron DeSantis for promoting it. That's that, right, totally. So I think look, if you're going to do a real man of the of year award, it needs to be incredibly difficult to accomplish right it's not something that you just sort of rode a wave of popularity everybody loves and like you know you're you're popular the man of the year you have to do something that's extremely hard yeah it's difficult to actually execute and in my mind there are very few people who walked through the fire in 2021 quite as well as ron DeSantis did yeah that's a good point like huge credit ron DeSantis, especially on his call like uh i think it was a month ago he was like Pretty soon, the definition of completely vaccinated is going to include the booster shot. And and media attacks him. They fact check him. They're like, wow, I, I can't believe he's spreading misinformation. <laughs> like, sure enough. <laughs> two or three weeks later, Fauci's like, you know what? I think the, the, the definition of fully vaccinated should be including booster. <laughs> I mean, like, he's dealt with a media that's incredibly hostile. And he's he's led Florida through such like great response to COVID. Like he was one of the first people to recognize that, hey, you know, while liberals were sending people dressed as the Grim Reaper out on beaches. Yeah. And then the science now shows that like outdoors, uh, what he was doing was an endless amount of air. Right. Uh, And light. Yeah. You know, that light is is one of the things that kills this virus. Just (laughs) incredible. Just incredible. Well, anyway. All right. So uh, welcome all of your man of the year discussions. Great picks. Yeah. Picks. I think they're pretty good. I think they were pretty good. Um, Let's go to the Hill for a second. It's been a while since we've talked about this stuff, but you might notice that this Build Back Brandon nonsense that's going that's on what it is. on Capitol Hill is um, rounding the bend, and Democrats are, are basically doing everything they can do to try to pass this thing before Christmas. God help us. It's, uh, as you yeah. recall, a couple trillion dollars of social spending that is absolutely unwarranted, completely reckless, changes all kinds of, not to mention... The impact that it has on inflation and everybody's po- pocketbooks. Like we were enormous. initially told, oh, this is this inflation is transitory. Yeah, we 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 now see it's not transitory. You've got Larry Summers, who was like Obama's advisor on this. Like, uh, this is looking very bad. Well, Powell now that you know, I mean, even the even the, on the inside, they're saying it's not transitory. Anyway, the Congressional Budget Office 
said, uh, I think over the weekend they came out with a new report that said it $3 trillion addition to the deficit over 10 years if all the programs in it are made permanent, which, of course, they all will be because that's just government. And, I, I mean, the $3 trillion number came out right on the heels of the inflation news. Yeah, it was like 6.8% or something like that. Gigantic. It's a 40-year high. Yeah. And, you know, there are some people among Democrats who represent uh, the types of folks who are affected by inflation, who's affected by higher egg prices, higher milk prices, higher gas prices. Real quick, I want to cut in. I want every, like, millennial right now to think about you were there when in 2008 we had the subprime crash. You had to deal with that. Now we're in a situation where you're being told, just put up with this. Just put up with this. Your grocery prices are higher. Buying a house is incredibly expensive. And your government's like, oh, no, put up with it. We need a win. Biden needs a win. That's basically their I pitch. think about that. And it's at the expense of people who can't afford their groceries to begin with. Yeah. And that's why Joe Manchin, who is a senator from West Virginia, everybody on the uh, listening to the show knows about him. Uh, he was going to meet with Biden uh, on Monday. And before he went in, he stressed the inflation numbers. He said, quote, inflation is real. It's not transitory. It's alarming. He sounds like somebody who is actually dealing with the effects of inflation and I just you keep hearing from people inside that Democrats are looking for ways to push this into next year, that they just don't want to pass it right now. Maybe that's what's going to happen. I don't you know, here's the thing. If if Manchin stops this thing, it'll be a couple of things. First time it'll be the absolute first time I've ever seen a Democrat stand up to their own party on a signature accomplishment. Never seen it happen before. So if it happens, that would be incredible. I'm not holding my breath. But second of all, what it tells you about the rest of these people, what it tells you about the rest of these people is they don't so much as have a single conversation with anybody who votes for them. Yeah. Because if you were to have a single conversation with anybody about the costs of everything, they would tell you, like, what the hell are you doing? I want to, I want to remind people, in the, around the 4th of July, this administration was like, don't believe your lying eyes. <laughs> Actually, hot food is yeah, cheaper. Right. Hot dogs are like point zero zero six cents yeah, cheaper. And, worse, right? and, worse. and again, I, I invite everyone to talk to the grill dads because yeah. they are seeing it. You go to Costco, you want to buy ribs? Tell me about that price increase. Yeah, it's you're triple. Paying, you're, paying, you're, you're paying double, you're paying triple. You're buying wings, double, triple. Like the prices are out of control. But to your point a second ago, Holmes, um, on uh, uh, Democrats who just sort of do what they're told, the unemployment rate in Nevada is 50th. They, are, they have the highest unemployment of any state in the country. So it, you can't tell me that West Virginia is the only state where people are struggling mm. because of inflation. What has Catherine Masto said? Nothing. Nothing. Except she's going to say yes. Yeah. She's going to vote for whatever well, she's Well, nobody's told even for. questioned whether her vote is there. That's a great point. Right? When we, had, when we had this info drop about how inflation's like out of control when all the data was coming out, and now that the CBO is like, actually, this is going to add $3 trillion to the deficit. It's not like Biden lied to us saying, oh, it's free. No, it's going to add $3 trillion. So when the news of this drops, what she's doing? She's like flying out to rename the, the airport in Her- Las Vegas Harry to Reed. Harry Reid Airport? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm sorry, your groceries are more expensive. It's going to help me in my election. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that's so confounding to me. And, and look, from a political standpoint, I'm like, oh, nobody tell them. But there's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that this helps Democrats at all. Well, In fact, exactly conversely, right. yeah, that's right. it's underwater mm-hmm. everywhere. And this is this is like the true perverse nature of politics in a lot of ways. When you get into the groupthink, 
nonsense of Washington, D.C., right? It's this partisan sort of collection of people who all convince themselves they have to do it just because they can't fail. And if they fail to do it, that'll be failure that'll cascade through the elections. But there has to be some sort of accomplishment you can run on. doesn't matter what what it it actually is or does or the impact it has on the economy. It's worse to not do anything right. in their mind. And that's what, they, that's what they're all busily convincing each other is right. the president needs a win. Yeah. And, and again, to reiterate, the majority of the cost of this like garbage legislation is that salt deduction. They're just giving a payoff to the liberal donors on the coasts who want to not pay taxes. They're paying them off. It's like, thank you, donors. Yeah. That's, what, that's what that's what American people should be paying for. Yeah, I mean, that's the state and local tax deduction, which enables states to tax the hell out of their residents to deduct a higher number from their federal taxes, right? So if you live in New York or California and you have to pay a 13 14% income tax there, you can deduct that from your federal taxes and therefore take it out of the kitty. Whereas somebody that lives in, you know, Florida, for example, it doesn't have state taxes. They're getting screwed by that. Yeah. So it's it, a lot of this is so political of, of, of just payoffs from the Dems. This is this is their bill to try to assume complete control. It is. It's it's complete crap. And we got to keep the heat up on this. I know there's been a lot of stuff going on. And so, you know, even on the variety program, we've not talked about it every day. But this is a real game changer. I mean, this is this is a problematic event for this country. And we just we have to keep firing at it. My guess is. That if we are successful at making this argument through Christmas, it's going to be really hard for these people to come back after the first of the year and pass this piece of garbage. I mean, that's the thing. That's like the biggest con of the year is Biden lying to Americans being like, oh, the cost of this is zero. Zero. And then it's actually scored. It's like, no, actually, it's three trillion added to the deficit. And there's all kinds of things. Also, I've just been like today we've been going through some of it. There are a bunch of things in here that nobody knows about. It's it reminds me of the Nancy Pelosi. You got to pass it to find out what's in it. Right. There's an, a lot to this bill that f- falls in that category. Well, $3 trillion will do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a massive, massive deal. Um, but like staying on Capitol Hill for a minute, I noticed there was a story that you commented on today, Ashbrook, that I found completely hilarious. There was a story in Business Insider about 182 high-ranking congressional staffers that have violated a federal conflict of interest law with overdue disclosure of their personal stock trades. This, of course, is referring to the Stock Act, which requires anybody making over a threshold of, I want to say it's like $130,000 or something like that, to disclose all of their investments in real time. And if any changes, they keep updating, right? So these guys go back through all these staffers and whatnot, and they find that, like, you know, yeah, these people aren't making any, like, serious money. Like, these are not, like major investors of any any kind have made some errors in their in their filings i thought you had the better point ashbrook well i guess what struck me about this series and actually this is it's a full series that that um insider is doing but what what struck me is that reporters and editors who publish these stories and some some stories that are published into market moving stories they're not required to disclose their stock holdings. Not at all. I mean, there are some, there are some people on uh, CNBC who voluntarily disclose their holdings, but that's far from everybody. Um, Especially in the political news, right? Because those things actually we've seen over the last decade have a capacity of moving a serious, serious amount of pressure on the market. Yeah. I, I mean, look, the, the idea that a 30-year-old freshman congressman possesses expertise that rises above an editor who spent 30 years following an industry and building sources, it's just ludicrous. Well, it, 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 look, I understand 
the premise behind the stock act. I get it. And I think that people should, frankly, you should, you should, if you're a member of Congress and I, you choose to run, right? And right. I, I think you, my, me personally, I think you should divest. I, I don't think that there should yeah, be any, mean, any like a blind, what, just like a blind trust well, situation. As long as it's truly blind. But, right. you know, we got yeah. into all that last year, too, with like, you know, Loeffler and Purdue and what's truly blind and everything. If you really want to get sort of out of that business altogether, just go put it somewhere where yeah. you can't get any access to it. There's no brokers that are calling you. There's no, there's nothing, the, right? Because there's a couple ways to look at the whole trading situation. Like, number one, I, I looked at this article, and the, they they claimed an example of trading, of, of a transaction was some guy's mother died and bequeathed him shares of General Electric. And they're like, oh... Is that that's insider trading or something? And he didn't like, file it, so he's he's rung up yeah, with the rest it's like, of them. Uh, whoops! I forgot to tell everyone. My mother just died and gave me shares of General Electric. That's like GE, dude. That's like yeah. a two hundred year old American company. Anyways, but then there's also situations where you have like it. It, it became a meme where Pelosi is so actively trading, like her portfolio <laughs> right. is like a hedge fund, and there was like a Twitter account which was automated, which was just like putting her disclosures of all the trades that her portfolio was doing out there, and it got banned by Twitter. Smug, do you remember how that portfolio was performed over the past <laughs> year? It, it was crushing it. I mean, I'm, no joke. It was beating the majority of hedge funds. Better than Vanguard? Oh, yeah, dude. It's it killing index funds. Are you serious? <laughs> I, I, I get your point, Holmes, about, like, you chose to run, and so, yeah, just divest. But, like, if you are not very wealthy and decide to run for Congress, like that divestiture would, would cost you a lot. Oh, it costs you, you know a lot what I mean? no matter what. But, but no, look, but I mean, I'm saying it's, easy, get... it's easier if you're already rich and you run for Congress to be like, yeah, I'll divest everything that I'm invested in. You know what I mean? Well, your net worth, certainly. I mean, if it doesn't mean as much to you, for sure. But, but I mean, look, the other side of this is you're running for Congress. You're in Congress. You get a 401k. You get matching funds. You got free health. Yeah. You know, like, I, I mean, look, when you add all that up, I get what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not It's not as though that, that if you're running for Congress for the money, brother, you came to the wrong spot, right? Like, this is not a money-making place. Well, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying if you got... If you got $25,000 in the market and you're not rich and you're running for Congress for the first time, you have to divest that? No, you, my point, put it in a managed fund. Yeah. Get it over outside of your control to a broker that cannot contact you for yes. the length of, of time that you're in. And that's the end of it. Totally on board. Right? I guess the point I'm making, and I, I, don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but the story says, and God bless the researchers who did this, they did a lot of hard work. They looked at 9,000 disclosures of staff and congressmen. Nobody's ever looked at 9,000 disclosures of reporters and editors. And to be honest with you, people are concerned that the information they're consuming from mainstream media is stilted in some way. Transparency could help that. Yeah. People are smart enough to see through things. No, so a good how point. about some transparency? It's a really good point. So, so I pulled up uh, this article from Fortune on uh, Nancy Pelosi's portfolio. It says... Uh, it made 5.3 million. This is in July of 2021. It made 5.3 million after buying shares in Nasdaq giants ahead of a vote on a weak antitrust bill meant to curb their power. I mean, 5.3 million dollars. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's insane. It's ridiculous. Nobody should be doing that. Nobody should be doing that. That's quite a return. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. But speaking of Pelosi, so she told CNN 
that she intends to stick around and lead House Democrats through the next election and perhaps beyond. <laughs> Finally, some good news. Well, you're, what you're hearing right now is uh, people cheering and popping champagne at the NRCC. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. I know. A co- so there's a couple things with that. The first is, um, look, she's not a popular person. No. No. But she is popular with Democratic donors. Yeah. Progressive movement donors, right? The one thing that Nancy Pelosi is smart enough to figure out is that you can't abandon your team mid-cycle. Because the message that it sends, the base of your party, and the donors is that you're almost certainly going to lose. Right. Mm. Right? And and I'm going to get out of here. At least I'm going to announce my intention to get out of here so I can't be on the hook when it That's happens. That's a good point. You know? Like, if, if you bail... All the donors are like, well, shit, why would I give money if it looks like, you know, you're, you're going to get your ass kicked? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I caught a ton of heat because in the New York Times, I criticized Paul Ryan mm. when he in 2018 decided that he was going to announce. Like he was like, I'm out. That he was moving on. And people were like, well, he said he was going to move. He, you know, only promised a couple terms to speaker. I said, yeah, that's fine. But you can't do that mid-cycle. Right. You can't just jump out of the foxhole and be like, all right, I'm out. You can't because the you are the House of Representatives is a unique place where it raises money almost exclusively on whoever the leader of their party is, mm. right? It's the only person who's got the nationwide name ID to collect big checks and do all the fundraising necessary, push an agenda, control the messaging, all of those things. So if the person who's in charge of all of those things going into the next election says like, eh, I'm out of here. Right. You got you got a big problem. I think Pelosi knows enough to know that she can't get out of there. Mm. I think in all likelihood she is out of there. Because remember, when she ran for speaker in the first place, she promised all of her colleagues she wasn't going to do that. Right. She was, she was going to do basically a one and done. Yeah. So well, that's what I'm saying is, though, here is like she could have said I'm going to run for re-election and I'm going to continue being speaker, but I'm going to honor my pledge to not run again, you know, for, for in democratic leader. And she didn't, do she that. didn't do that. Right. Because you can't, again, nobody in the major, and this is a perverse insight into the way that this stuff works. But right. I'm telling you from having sat in these chairs, I can, this is how it works. You can't go meet with major donors and have them be entirely affected by something that you're promising to do when you're not there. Right. Doesn't work that way. Right. Right? Like nobody, when, when, when they're listening to your view of what the next two years are going to be like and why you should invest in that, you can't say, oh, by the way, it's somebody else's gun. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. No, I get it. Right? I get it. That being said, though, all right, so they lose the house, which... They are going to lose the House. Yeah. Uh, do you think Nancy Pelosi stays on as Democratic leader? 100% no. No? 100% no. I'll bet you that she is out by mid-November of next year. Wow. Full retirement. Not just a stepping down from the leadership. I think full retirement. You think she retires from Congress? Yeah. After just having one re-election? Yes. Which, yeah. which is what, again. She's like 82? Yeah. 82? Good God. Which, again, you got to wonder about the democracy aspects of that, too, right? She's planning on filing a re-election, running for re-election in her district. She gets re-elected. I guarantee you she bounces on these people. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you she does. <laughs> a bit, libs may not care. That's just kind of the way that they work. But that that it's an interesting story to keep an eye on. My guess is that she is going to leave, but she's not going to tell anybody that she's going to do it now. So, speaking of out-of-control animals. 
<laughs> I always love a good smug segue. I, I, I've I've got my like animal news for the episode. We have a man attacked by a gang of otters, bitten twenty six times. He says, "quote I thought I was going to die." Otters, otters. Uh, again, it seems are, like a lot of these, like the beavers, were a big those deal little critters. For a while. It, it, it's varmints and critters are like rising up. We and have they, we have warned people previously on the program yeah, about this, and, and they roll in gangs. That's the thing is, like you know, if it's just one, you're like, okay, I can probably handle this situation. <laughs> a gang of these things. So well, and they and they have big teeth. They do, and they can. They look cute, but they have big teeth. And clearly, they're serious. He said, you know, I thought I was going to die. They bit him twenty six times. So. Wait, so where was, where was this? So uh, our, our friends at the New York Post covered this story. It was a Singapore resident. I didn't even know they had, I didn't even know they had otters out in Singapore. But anyways, a Singapore resident was hospitalized after a bizarre animal attack last month in which he was accosted by a gang of otters who reportedly bit him 26 times. Quote, I actually thought I was going to die. They were going to kill me. <laughs> British native Graham George Spencer told the Straits Times of the utterly, oh gosh, uh, good work, New York Times, or uh, New York Post, utterly frightening encounter. Utterly <laughs> <laughs> frightening. Yeah. So, all right, so I'm reading about this. This guy was in his 60s and yeah. he was reportedly approaching the visitor center of this place where he was at when he spotted around 20 otters crossing a dimly lit path in front of them. Yeah. It sounds like they were, like, uh, staking them out. It's like an otter gang. Yeah. And I guess they're not common. He, he says it was the first time he'd seen, you know, otters in the area in, in the five months he'd been living there. And then, like, uh, uh, a jogger runs through the pack, causing them to just, like, go ham. It says, quote, crazy like dogs. And try to bite the passerby. Oh. It's, it, and it says, fortunately, the runner escaped. But the water weasels set their sights on Spencer, who believed they'd mistook him for the runner. <laughs> so this, wait, so the runner got out yeah, scot-free. The runner's like, I'm done with this, and, and this guy's left to deal with the aftermath. This poor bastard staring down 20 of these things coming 20. at him like the coming at him like West Side Story. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like uh, it's like that joke like. Um, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's exactly it. It's the same that's thing. That's exactly it. Like, you read the encounter, like, uh, his, like, you know, step by step, what happened is they bite him in the ankles, <laughs> right? Push him down and leap on top of him, then proceed to bite the prone man around his legs, shoes, and buttocks. So they stayed in the lower body. Yeah. Uh, one nipping at his finger, according to media reports. It says uh, the creature ceased the attack momentarily, allowing Spencer to get up and make a break for it. Uh, 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 That's amazing. Oh, my God. 20 otters. I mean, I'll be the first to say I, I could not take head on if it's to the death 20 otters. I mean, that's a lot to worry about because, like, you know. I don't know. You see 20 of them rushing at you. you you'll get your, like, initial strike. How many are you going to kick or stomp in the face, kill them? Three, four, five, six, six if you're, if you're going ham. And you've got fourteen more. Holmes, Holmes, the teeth on these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can like crush crush a clam. But are they like su? Are these are these like piranhas? Are they like suicidal animals? Well, it seems know. to me like you could maybe send a message. I think if they're rolling in a the pack, they kind that- of have the mentality that like we're all in this together. Like, yeah. To the last, like you could drop kick one. I see what you're saying. You're going to send a message. You send a message. You like you run at them and just boot Mm -hmm. one right in their little mug. Yeah. Send him, you know, ass over tea kettle. Yeah. And then you take a look at the rest of the otters and you say, what's up? I, I think they're like a very group-minded no? creature where they're like, you know. Swarm. We're all Exactly. We're swarming. We're in this together. 
I never knew this of an otter. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that their PR is insane. <laughs> like, the only thing most people know about otters is, like, oh, you know, the, like, uh, the, the mates, like, husband and wife otter, they hold hands so they don't float away when they're sleeping. Everyone's like, oh, they're adorable. Clearly, they roll in gangs to kill people. Look at those teeth. I'm, I'm bringing up a photo here of no, otter, otter at, teeth. Oh, Jesus, that is a ferocious-looking animal. Yeah. My God, look at that. Those incisors. Large incisors. But you know what? If you were to get a heel of a boot right on that snout, there's no way that thing's getting up. But that's the thing. Yeah, like but you, how you, many are hitting? Right. How many are hitting? How, how many are... You're saying the message won't be sent. I'm yeah, saying yeah. I'm saying you you punt one and another one's on your kneecap. Yeah. They, clearly, they go for the lower body. Also, guys, it's a 60-year-old guy. They got him down on the ground. Yeah. yeah. They gave him a couple of nips to the ankles and feet. Like, come on. That's why, that's why I wouldn't go for kicks. You know, because because they're trying to take you down. Or you're going for fists. Yeah, well, you know, I might punch a couple. I, I, honestly, I'm trying to get out of there. <laughs> like, I might stomp a couple heads, but you're not taking 20 of them. That's just like, you're, you're overrun. You have to get out of you there. You would get overrun. I don't think they can climb trees. I'd try to get up a tree. I want to know more about the psychology of an otter before I concede to them. But I get your point. I get your point. Uh, did you guys see this thing in South Dakota where, I mean, honestly, it looked like a real squid game. Um, I heard about this. So an arena in South Dakota is holding a dash for cash where teachers get on their knees and fight for $1 bills that they can use for classroom supplies while spectators watch and cheer. I love it. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I support this. Wait, wait. This sounds so cool. Is this just supposed to be demeaning? <laughs> you love this. There's so it's a lot a of people who work very hard crawling on their hands and knees for singles. So, wait. We have to oh, my God. We have to respect labor. It's so hardcore. <laughs> so, it's a junior hockey game in Sioux Falls, South Dakota on Saturday night. They had $5,000 and $1 bills that were dumped under the carpet in the middle of the ice as 10 local <laughs> school teachers readied themselves to shovel up as much as they could. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen the video of this. Have you seen the video of it? I saw I, I saw video, uh, uh, photos. I would love to. I, I'd pay top dollar. I want to see this. I mean. This is entertaining. This should be like Squid Game. It it Well, you get what you paid for because these people are, are very serious about gobbling up these dollars. You it know, has been met with some criticism, however. And and that's the thing to me is, you know, you're going to get all these libs and commies who are going to be like, oh, my God, like, can you believe they're made? Folks, there's $5,000 being thrown at teachers and they're having a good time. Not the teachers like, you know what? Honestly, screw having cash thrown at me. <laughs> and, and, and when I saw Squid Game, here, here was my thought is, uh, you know, the first episode, they're like, oh, here's how it works. You know, everyone's got to fight for this money. I was like, man, I, I poured myself a bourbon. I was like, I wish this was real. Like, you know how the ratings would be if I could it's watch smug. this? Like, it's a true sport. It's to the end. Sm smug like, that's a realist sport. I love smug leaning in and being like, Squid Game is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you not, would not be surprised to find out that there was a uh, fair amount of critiques for this scrambling and what people dubbed as a dehumanizing and dystopian display out on the ice there in South Dakota. Uh, but, you know, Smug's here for another perspective. And, and that's the thing is like oh, a, a journo's job is to be mad and make people mad. How many of these journos? Okay, so you got 10 teachers, 5,000 bucks. Let's let's average it out, 500 bucks a pop. How many of these journos are giving 500 bucks to a teacher? None. <laughs> None of them. None of them. Well, I mean, what they want to do is post all day and say, isn't it a shame you know, these teachers who, who 
you know, in South Dakota, I don't know what a teacher makes. I imagine it's not very much, unfortunately. Um, but the fact that these teachers are in this game to get school supplies isn't a fault of like how much the education system in South Dakota, you know, spends per pupil. It's because we have an administrative state in our cartel of education that robs these teachers and gives it to unions. That's the point. And, and, and bloated with all this administrative bullshit. And so you got teachers here having to get, you know, supplies for their kids. Yeah. It's not Randy Weingarten taking like private planes cares about teachers having to scrap together cash (laughs) for real. I mean, just remember nine months ago, States got 350 billion billion with a B in all purpose, federal grants plus an additional 129 billion just for the schools, for things right. like I don't know supplies. Yeah. yeah. So oh it, if, gosh, if teachers, teachers can't right, if teachers can't get supplies, it's not a fault of of us not spending enough on education. No, it's because the whole system is corrupt. One hundred twenty nine billion. They could buy like the crayon industry. Like let's be serious. <laughs> no, it's true. And honestly, this is a perfect example of how corrupt it is. I saw this California's first. <laughs> listen to this. California's first superintendent of equity. That's a job. Of this equity. is a job. Their superintendent of equity lives in Philadelphia and has a separate job there. California <laughs> lives in Philly. Yeah, no, no. The California superintendent of equity lives in Philly, uh, 2,500 miles away from the school he advises, and he's one of the highest paid officials in the State Department of Education. Tell well, me you have a bullshit job equity. without telling me you have a bullshit job. He's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like phoning it in literally. Daniel Lee, a psychologist, life coach, and self-help entrepreneur, owns a Pennsylvania-based psychology firm and is president of the New Jersey Psychological Association's executive board. He's also been serving as a deputy superintendent for California's Department of Education since July of 2020, a role dedicated to the success of children of color. It was originally backed by a foundation grant, but is now funded by state taxpayers. Mm. Oh, That's how it goes. That's okay. how it goes. So the California Department of Education pays this dude 180 grand to live in Philly, basically. Incredible. I would like to tell you what, what equity gets you in education these days. In Oregon, the governor, Kate um, Brown. This pissed me off. Yeah, signed a law that makes it so reading and writing and high school math are not requirements for graduation that's equity to them yeah because yeah. it because yeah. it's racist right? it's racist to teach people math i mean there's yeah. soft bigotry of low expectations and then there's and this there's like oh you guys <laughs> yeah uh to be fair we can't let children of color be subjected to having to learn math uh, incredible it's incredible. incredible what a rotten institution <sighs> All right, well, let's turn the page. We have a very important interview that I'm going to get to after we go through these foreign policy craziness uh, that we're about to talk about because it all kind of intertwines. Yep. And our our interview talks about all of this. You're going to love it. Get a little bit more uh, of a smarter take than we typically have here on Ruthless. And that you don't get anywhere else. And that you don't get anywhere else. This guy named Bridge Colby who ran strategic defense at under Trump in 17 and 18 He's got really, really smart takes on a lot of this stuff. But let's introduce all of the reasons why we need to talk to this guy. And Smog, I know some of this caught your eye. Yeah, it did. So uh, this is quite the title. But the most bonkers Washington Post uh, opinion piece of the week said, quote, Putin barrels towards invading Ukraine, encouraged by Trump. Unbelievable. All right, so, so this wasn't written last year during the, or during the Trump administration. It was last week. <laughs> 
Like, think about that. It was written They're like, week. Trump is causing this. <laughs> like, think about, we don't need any, like, conspiratorial analysis of Trump's links with Russia to make this case. Just look at the facts, all right? Trump, uh, 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 as for, like, you think of Ukraine, Trump was so heedless of its security that he conditioned U.S. military aid on political favors in the famous 2019 Oh, I phone see what call. they're doing. Like, that's what they're thinking. They're I like, see what they're oh, doing. Oh, he has conditioned the military to, to fall in line with this phone call in 2019 where, I mean, this is what you have to think about is uh, they impeached Donald Trump yeah. for a phone call with Ukraine and then Biden rolls up and just gives Ukraine to Russia. He's that like, Here you go, that was literally a suggestion last week is give, give it to Russia. Yeah, that, that, he was like, you know, maybe if you give him some land... I already gave him a pipeline. He can have Nord Stream. Come on, guys. So, but these guys, what they're saying in this opinion piece is basically the reason that, that Russia is taking over Ukraine is not because the United States has been rendered completely impotent by our retreat from Afghanistan in embarrassing fashion, our retreat and basically embarrassing performance in Taiwan vis-a-vis China, but rather by Donald Trump three years ago who made a phone call that yeah. they impeached yeah. him upon. And, and that phone call brainwashed our military to like follow through it makes sense if you're just like a completely broken brain lib. <laughs> it's unbelievable. But 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 uh, another foreign policy take I really wanted to cover is that uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal. Very important for folks to realize this. It says China will soon lead the U.S. in tech. Beijing pulls ahead in 5G and artificial intelligence while catching up on semiconductors. And this is on top of, as we've discussed... China and Russia have successfully tested and deployed hypersonic missiles, which are uh, capable of impeding our anti-ballistic missiles that we have and pose a significant threat, especially to our aircraft carriers, which is basically like the tip of the spear for American projection of foreign policy power. Um, This article says that China has made such extraordinary leaps that is now a full-spectrum peer competitor in each of the foundational technologies of the 21st century, Artificial intelligence, semiconductors, 5G wireless, quantum and information science, quantum computing, biotechnology, and green energy, China could soon be the global leaders. In some areas, it is already number one. Last year, China produced 50% of the world's computers and mobile phones. Jeez. Think about that. Jeez. The U.S. produced only 6%. Oh, man. China produces 70 solar panels for each one produced in the U.S. So when you hear these like, oh, build back Brandon, we're going to have solar panels. China loves that. Well, dude, you know, we talked about this with a guest a couple of weeks ago in this build back Brandon bill where they mandate things like solar panels, mandate things like electric cars. And yet the materials to build both are exclusively made in China. Exactly. Right. So like literally what they are doing is using American policy to make this country more reliant on China, and that's not. That's I'm it. not. That's not hyperbolic. That's it. That's that's fact. That's not an exaggeration. That is literally what they are doing. And so, what what's really crushing is okay. So, what's the White House doing? So this this occurred. This is from Reuters. A video feed of a Taiwanese minister was cut during U.S. President Joe Biden's summit for democracy last week after a map in her slide presentation showed Taiwan in a different color to China. You know, uh, it says sources familiar with the matter told Reuters that Friday's slideshow by Taiwanese digital minister Audrey Tang caused consternation among U.S. officials after the map appeared in her video feed for about a minute. Can I ask you a question real fast? Yeah. Um, the White House is saying this was an, an accident. Yeah. This I was mean, like a tech glitch. Oh, Do you believe total, that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
the tech glitch happens just like, oh, oh, whoops. Unbelievable. It, 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 it's like, you know, the, the, the old, like, wait, uh, what's the vaudeville pulling someone off the stage with a cane. Right. This is what happens before our eyes, and everyone's like, the White House is like, oh, absolute mistake. It's the it's the Taiwanese minister's video feed, right? I mean, what's the tech glitch? Here, here's the thing, though, and this is from Reuters, folks. It says, uh, the sources who spoke with them who did not want to be identified due to the sensitivity of the matter said the video feed showing Tang was cut during a panel discussion and replaced with audio only at the behest of the White House. So they got it. At yep, the behest it. of the White House. So when House. the White House lied saying it's a glitch, there are sources who said straight up they were told by the White House, cut video feed. Oh, Heaven forbid Taiwan be a separate country. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. These people are so impotent and so terrible, and they're leading us towards such a dark path. I mean, look, I know it's super easy as an American. we got a lot of problems going on to just sort of try to put blinders on and ignore the rest of the world. The problem is, is that these major security aspects that Smug just covered, things like semiconductors, things like the internet, 5G, social media, all of these things are what makes the world run currently. And if there is a country that happens to be an adversary of the United States that has, you know, if not majority control, almost monopoly control over the rest of the world of these things, you don't have America. You can't just put up the border. Yep. You can't, it just doesn't exist, right? I mean, the only thing that we've got going currently, because these guys have lost sight of so many things over the years, is the fact that we have technological development and innovation in this country, the likes of which China is not capable. We basically have better people, right? I mean, that's what it boils down to. We have people who have been innovating and creating since the beginning of time, which is why China wants to steal all of our shit, yeah. right? So, so that's what's insulating us from an otherwise an incredible economic and military problem that we have. And yet, if you look at what the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress are trying to do, it's all attacking inward. Let's let's do a Build Back Brandon bill yep. that tries to take down our own our own innovation. Let's try to do antitrust bills to take out our own tech industry. Well, let's and let's buy let's buy solar panels from the number one carbon emitter in the world. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. Right? I mean, it's just so back-asswards, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And they won't have the conversation. They're counting on all of you being too stupid to connect the That's dots. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's what they're counting on. They're counting on nobody having the intellectual curiosity to pick up a book or listen to a program like this to understand the problems that they are themselves creating for you in this country, which is coming. I got to tell you, it's already here in many respects. You know, I, I'll probably get in some deep dives on this. this. This is a subject that needs to be discussed. It does. So. It does. Well, the good news is the American people aren't fooled about much about Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you look at this latest new CNBC poll. It seems to me this is a common refrain. In almost every one of these polls, this quote or some variation of it is right at the top. This quote. In the past 20 years, CNBC and NBC surveys have never registered a double-digit Republican advantage on congressional preference. <laughs> Red wave. To, to Red how many wave. times have we read that? <laughs> to, so put a, to put a finer point on what Josh is saying, that we were raised to believe that a minus seven. Right. So Republicans only losing to Democrats by seven points in the generic ballot. We were raised to believe that that, is the, that was the greatest accomplishment we could ever make. That's like a dead-even deal. You right, fight, you dead even. You fight for majorities with minus seven. And being up double digits? Holy moly. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it's obviously a lot to do with the economy, right? Amid growing worries of COVID and the economy, President Joe Biden's approval ratings in both areas took yet another hit, while Americans' preferences for congressional control strung, uh, swung sharply towards Republicans. Of course they did. Yeah. Of course they did. We've been telling you that for now a year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens is the, the, the biggest lie was him making this campaign promise that I'm going to shut down the virus and not the economy. And now we've seen the opposite. There have been more COVID deaths under Joe Biden when he was handed over these vaccines, these miraculous vaccines. More people have died because of COVID under Joe Biden than under President Trump. And meanwhile, the economy continues to suffer. We see inflation getting out of hand. I mean, this is what voters are seeing. They're, they're, they're experiencing it every day and now you're seeing it in the polling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good news. Fellas, we ought to play a game, shouldn't we? Let's play a game. I think so. I think we need to play Claim to Fame. Oh, good. We haven't played that in a we while. We haven't played it in a while. Yeah, and, good timing. You know, I mean, he's he's as crazy as ever with the RTs. So let's go ahead and hit that theme song. Don't you know who I am? Remember my name. Claim! Brainworm takes forever. You're gonna like my post. Most! I feel engagement forever. Broken brain takes with no shame. Queen! Hot takes up to 11. Saving Joe Biden from blame. Queen! It's gonna live forever. Ronnie, remember my name. Remember, 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 remember. remember. Ah, it's so good. Great theme song. It's a good theme song. So for our new listeners here, Claim to Fame. Ron Klain, White House Chief of Staff, uh, is sort of notorious for, you know, throwing out a lot of RTs on Twitter <laughs> to people who might not otherwise deserve them from somebody who's ostensibly supposed to be leading the White House. You're uh, not supposed to be a magnificent tweeter if you're a chief. You're supposed to chief the staff. You're supposed to chief the staff. Yeah. You're supposed to be the, you know, like running the White House in the country. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in this game, I present... Four tweets to Josh and to, to Smug, three of which have been retweeted by Ron Klain, one which has not. <laughs> and they have to decide which one was not retweeted by Ron Klain. It's a difficult game. It's a very difficult game. Plus, you also have to put play the mind meld with the judge and jury. That's right. Yeah, that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Tweet number one from Joy Reid. <laughs> who has actually uh, changed her Twitter name to Joy Ann, parentheses, pro-democracy read. Oh, that's oh, the yeah. Oh, yeah. I think Ruben did that. Oh, too. she's pro-voting. Yeah. Pro-voting, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Same thing. Okay. Same, same yeah. sort of thing. Pro-democracy, interesting. Um, tweet number one. So gas prices are apparently down. We'll have to wait till later in the day's Beltway news cycle to find out how this hurts Biden and the Democrats. <laughs> so good it is good tweet number two from aaron rupar oh god uh and this is clearly echoing the dana milbank piece we previously covered on the program it's not just you the media really has had it out for biden lately (laughs) wow linking to his sub stack about how unfair things are for joe biden Tweet number three from Secretary Marty Walsh. Over Thanksgiving, families saw 
Shipping prices go down 25%. Unbelievable. Full grocery stores. Full shelves on Black Friday. In December, we're seeing more consumers are ordering online and shopping for the holidays with confidence. POTUS's port action plan is working. <laughs> oh. oh, it's incredible. <laughs> and tweet number four from Max Boot. Dictators are on the march. (laughs) Democracy is on the defensive. As Ann Applebaum wrote, the bad guys are winning. Awesome. Biden's democracy summit will not change the outcome of this struggle, but it will signal that the U.S. is once again on the side of the good guys. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, like the Taliban. Yeah. Is, that, is that a good example of the good guys that we're on the side of? Or like Putin in yeah. Ukraine? Yeah, is that which which good guys? Like, there's so many good I guys. we were told they're bad guys. Wow, so weird. Yeah, there's so many good guys to choose from. I, I think I know this one. Okay, hold on, I'll turn around. Holmes is turning around, so Smug This can... is the one I thought was not retweet. Okay. All right. Smug's decision has been made. Walked in. It is known only by Judge and Jerry. And now the discussion period can commence. Okay. So, uh, one, Joy Reid is a favorite of Ron Klein. Yeah. Uh, he goes on there frequently. Just to give you an idea of his echo chamber, uh, he spends an enormous amount of time on MSNBC and with MSNBC personalities. He loves the echo chamber. It's the only thing that can make him feel good. He can't, like, look out the window. Right. I mean, <laughs> like, a lot of critiques about Trump always going on Fox. Never was he more focused on one network like Ron Klain is on MSNBC. Yeah. Just, just so her and the gas prices, this has been a Klain thing. Klain has been talking. Remember, he made people push out just ridiculous. Oh, the, the White House uh, uh, stat that gas prices had gone down by half a cent over a week. Yeah. And they were like cheerleading. It, it. it was intended as a joke. And then the D trip puts out this graphic like, look. Yeah. Yeah. But he stayed on it. Yeah. He stayed on. They acted like it wasn't a joke. Yeah, that's right? why. That's why I thought it was a retweet. Is like it's it's weird for some reason. This administration thinks that like journos have it out for them because they refuse to be like actually comrade. Paying more for things is good for you. You know, like right. they're mad. Like the journos' job is supposed to be, hey, everything is shit. You need to tell people it's actually good. And occasionally you'll get some idiots like the Washington Post to be like, yes, actually inflation is good. But, like, they feel like they're being snubbed and mistreated. So that's why I feel like that's a retweet. Because, like, he loves no the, question. like, oh, my gosh, we're being wrongly harmed by journos. No question. So I think, number one, no-brainer RT. Number three to me is also a no-brainer RT because this is somebody who is in the administration. Ostensibly, if you were to act on Twitter as a chief of staff, this is the kind of tweet, that you, as ridiculous as it is, that you probably would serve up, right? Marty Walsh. Port action plan is working. Jesus. That's I mean. it. So I've, I said this is a retweet because it's just like straight up regime lies. Like people are shopping online, not because like the shelves are empty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. Or he's like, we have a we have a plan for the ports where uh, I think it was a WSJ who had an article talking about how the backup at the ports in California has gotten so bad that ships are now further out because there's not space for them like anywhere in proximity. <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, no, the plan's working. <laughs> so really it boiled down between Rupar and Boot to me. Mm-hmm. And and here's the thing that, like, 
I'm having a, a difficult time wrapping my mind around. Is it the whole preamble the boot comes at this with that like dictators are on the march and all of that? Is that an inherent criticism of his own administration? Mm. It would seem to me like it is, although he back ends it with a, you know, this is why the Biden, whatever this nonsense event that they were doing is going to change all of that. Um, is that more worthy than Rupar continuing to do what they just set weeks when we covered last week in the program about trying to sit media down and talk about how they needed to, to present the good things that were happening. Right. Right. So what outweighs what? They're yeah, both claim priority. Right. And, the, and for, for our listeners who forget, the White House actually sat down major corporate media companies and said, your coverage isn't fair enough for us. Yeah, which is why we Unreal. got Dana Milbank. Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. Right? So, it's a real six of one, half dozen of another. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the White House Chief of Staff RTing Aaron Rupar three weeks after their effort is a little bit further than even Ron Klain in his current insanity can go. I think number two is the no RT. Okay. Smug also picked number two. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are right. Yay! Look at that. That's good. I really thought I was going to get you with Max Boot. I really thought I was going to get you guys with Max Boot. It's a good Boot one. The the thing is, is that like he plugged this bizarre... The reason that changed it for me is that he plugged this thing that nobody in the world knew was happening, which only a chief of staff would be proud of. Right. Right. Mm. But the thing that's interesting is Max Boot says in the run up to that, he says Biden's democracy summit will not change the outcome <laughs> of this struggle. And the chief of staff of the White House is like, good enough for me. Yeah, I'm fine. he mentioned <laughs> yes. it. Good he point. mentioned it. Good point. All men, she's good men. She's unbelievable. It's a good game, though. It's a good game. Couple of W's for the good guys. Oh, well, let's play that music one more time. Don't you know who I am? Remember my name. Clean! Brainworm takes forever. You're gonna like my post. Most! I feel engagement forever. Broken brain takes with no shame. Clean! Hot takes up to 11. Saving Joe Biden from blame. Clean! It's gonna live forever. Uh, remember. <laughs> remember. It's a good game. Great, great game. Great song. All right, so we got a big interview here. This is Bridge Colby. If you haven't heard of him before, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategic and Force Development in the Trump administration. Very smart guy. I think you'll like it. I want to welcome to the program a very interesting guy, somebody whose expertise falls squarely in an area that you've heard a lot about here on the Ruthless Variety program. Uh, Bridge Colby, how are you, sir? Doing well, Josh. Great to be on with you. So you served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategic and Force Development during the Trump administration. Do I have that all correct? Yeah, that's that's it, basically. That's essentially right. And, and you've now written a book uh, entitled Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. Um, that's great stuff. Listen, the reason we wanted to have you on and, and I'm, it's very nice to meet you, but but I think 
the thing that's looming over a lot of our defense discussions, foreign policy discussions, really, is this feeling like America, for the first time in multiple generations, is beginning to fall behind, particularly China, but but sort of just this general malaise within our defense uh, approach. What's your take on that? I think you're right. I mean, well, first of all, it's great to be on with you uh, and a uh, big, big fan of what you guys are doing. I mean, I think um, that's accurate. I actually, the Chicago Council just came out with a poll, I think today, and the Reagan Institute has done some similar stuff just showing people are people are waking up that we're in a superpower rivalry for the first time. And actually, I, I say this, it sounds a little trite, but I actually think it's true, which is that people outside the blob and the beltway have actually been more attuned to it because I think they felt like the industrialization and the impact on the econ- the real economy faster than the sort of like a cell corridor people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's very real. And I think it's just, you know, it's a very simple reality at some level, which just for the first time in 150 years, we're not the world's largest economy. You know, we were always much larger than the USSR, Nazis, the Japanese, and the Germans in World War One, and the Chinese. You know, by some measures, are already larger than we are. And you know, that combined with the kind of almost insane level of hubris that we allowed ourselves to fall prey to after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union is just kind of put us in a situation where we were not prepared for. You know, the Chinese turning that immense economic productivity into military strength now, and I think you know, it's dawning on us too late, hopefully not too, too late, but, you know, late that the Chinese mean business. I mean, Xi Jinping's a man who spent five years in a cave as a, as a teenager. I certainly didn't. Um, you know, so these, these guys are, these guys mean business and they're sort of in the back of people's heads a lot. Uh, oh yeah, we're America. You know, actually secretary of defense said this the other day, he said, he literally said, we're America as if like, well, it's kind of ironic coming from the administration, but, you know, as if we can't be challenged. And I was like, well, I think we can definitely be challenged like they their hypersonic test, for instance. Yeah, right. A couple, couple of weeks ago, the reaction from some of the people that that like the Financial Times was talking to is that they thought it violated the laws of physics. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I, I take them very seriously. I think I think we're in a serious really serious competition for the for the future of the world, because Asia is where all the wealth is. And, and we're all going to essentially be working for the Asian market at some level. And the question is whether we're doing it under the Chinese thumb or in a more open way. Which is so amazing. I mean, you talked about the hubris, the fall of the USSR, the hubris that followed. Let's get into that for a second, because I, I think that's an important part of this. It's this assumption, essentially, that you never have to grow and build and change and adapt to threats over time, right? That everything is this static world that if you have the best capable defense in 1989, that you're essentially in perpetuity leading the leading the rest of the world. Yeah, I think, and even more broadly, like that our economic system and our social system couldn't be challenged, that like in the 90s and 2000s, that we we had unlocked the, the end of history, as people put it, and like we were just going to be productive. We could throw open our borders to whatever trade agreements might come along. It didn't matter because we were going to be so productive. And our military could never be challenged because we you know, done all this high technology stuff. And it was like, no, actually, the Chinese in particular were just being quiet. They weren't being stupid about it, but they were quietly stealing our technology, mm-hmm. stealing a lot of our industries, and then eventually turning that into military capability. And, you know, I think one of the things, you know, sort of if I could say like our generation of Republicans, conservatives, whatever you want to say, is I think there's a much more acute sense that that is not like just a given. Whereas I think the generation above us or whatever, the two generations, some of them, you know, they just can't believe it. I mean, sometimes I think that with with the president, you know, he just like this comment, the most revealing comment a couple of years ago about the Chinese was like, ah, come on, 
you know, like yeah, right. that was sort of that's his real register. You know, he's been trained not to say that anymore, but like that's where his gut is. Mm-hmm. No, I, it's fascinating. I mean, you can kind of see generate generationally the, you know, the kids of the greatest generation, the baby boom generation, you just kind of grow up with that. But then you also had the Reagan era, which I think restored an awful lot of confidence in, you know, in next yeah. generation. Uh, and, and so you're right. I mean, I think psychologically it is very difficult as an American to grapple with the idea that we are threatened on a global footing. Yeah, but I think it's again, it's the reality. And and part of the challenge of what I'm trying to do is, you know, not only are we being threatened, we're being threatened in ways that are really important, but far away. So, I mean, I, I my, my gut is actually, you know, I, 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 my, my sympathies in a way are, are on the side of like not doing things abroad militarily, not getting involved in new wars and ending the forever wars. But at the end of the day, you know, we're like 20% of the global economy and there's not that, that much that's that important in the Western hemisphere other than us. Asia is going to be over 50% of global GDP if the Chinese and the Chinese are obviously there. If they dominate that market, I mean, I think, you know, and I was, was, was watching a little bit of Fox this morning and somebody was saying, oh, you know, people are worried about Taiwan, but we got these problems at home with crime. And it's like, I totally agree with that. But those things don't stop at the same time. And at least now, you know, we have the hope that a political coalition to our liking, broadly speaking, could come in and change things and we'd have the power to do that. But if the Chinese, you know, say the social media companies, if the Chinese, if all the social media companies are either Chinese or Chinese derivatives or they're um, beholden to the Chinese, forget it. Like, no matter what the political coalition we elect in America is, we're screwed. That's such a good point. We, we try to make that point in the program several times is that you do have a choice at some level. You know, with all the problems that we have with social media companies at the end of the day, they are American, right? They're responsible exactly. to American concerns. China does not have the same compunction about our concerns, right? The values, the national security components, the all of that. I mean, that's that's their goal from the very beginning is to try to soup to end soup to nuts own that delivery system, right? T- totally. I mean, they have, they, they, I think they've probably stolen a lot of the technology, but then they, they're actually, it's really an innovative economy at this point. They're ahead of us, like apparently in AI, for instance. So, so they've got, you know, killer companies and I mean, you know, WeChat, for instance, right. I mean, people are all excited about that or, or, um, you know, any, any number of these, of these companies, but, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Facebook and Twitter, they, when they get called up to the Congress, they get and get it berated they gotta by, by they gotta go. members. <laughs> they got to go. But in China, they'd be like, whatever. And <laughs> and we know that. And they got no privacy restrictions. They don't have any private restrictions on their own people. So why would we think they'd be more generous with us? That's so right. I don't think we want that. It's not that we want to get eliminate all their companies. They can have them in their country if that's what they want to do. I, I, I If I were Chinese, I'd want to live in democracy. But that's not our job at the end of the day. Our job is to be able to protect our democracy and work with others in the in the world who kind of share that opposition to being dominated by China. But it's a very real it's a very real possibility. Let me ask you, because you mentioned this briefly, but but the issue of Taiwan and China and, and your sympathies, I think, as most people's sympathies to not get involved in a whole bunch of things that you can't control. But this one you think is different. I happen to agree with you, but if, if you could explain that a little bit to us. Sure. No, thanks. I mean, I exactly. I think you put it well. My instinct is not to get involved. But but look, the reality is that China's way of getting through to dominate Asia, which is, again, I think we've already discussed is going to really affect our lives and our liberties in very fundamental ways. Its way to do that is to kind of break apart this coalition. I mean, we're not strong enough to stand up to the Chinese. And it's not because there's anything wrong with us. There's 1.4 billion Chinese who finally cracked the code on how to be a productive modern economy. So they're going to be really strong and wealthy. So that's just a reality. So we have to work with others 
partners like Japan, India, Australia, South Korea, et cetera. So it's a coalition. But the problem with the coalition is that, you know, everybody's always wondering whether you're going to stand with me when the chips are down. Right. I mean, it's reasonable. And everybody in Asia is already saying, I'd like to not I'd like to live in an Asia that's not dominated by China. But if I'm going to get completely crushed and smoked by the Chinese, if I if I stick my neck out and I'm left alone, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to cut a deal and make my best and be on their good side. And it's a very real possibility. I mean, Lee Kuan Yew, the famous Singaporean statesman, he had a comment about the about Thailand, which is kind of unfair, but gets something. He said they blow, they they bend before the wind blows. I mean, countries, you know, I mean, it's politics, right? So you're going to make a deal if you can make a deal if that's your least bad option. So the, that's why that's a really big part of why Taiwan is important because we are connected to Taiwan. Our credibility is online. I'm not a credibility fetishist. Like I think we can get out of places in the Middle East and reduce in Europe without it. But but if you're the Philippines or Japan or Australia, let alone Vietnam or somebody, and you're saying the Americans backed out on Taiwan, you know, we can flap our gums till the cows come home, but like they're not going to believe us. And that's going to make our position a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, Josh, is that like, Taiwan is kind of in our wheelhouse. People say it's 100 miles from China, but you know South Korea is 100 miles from China. Right. Japan's about 200 miles, 300 miles from China. Philippines 100 miles from Taiwan. So all the all the important stuff is over there. There's nothing in the middle of the Pacific, right? So we got to fight over there. That's that's where the action is. And it, Taiwan is an island. And to put it just very kind of simplistically, we're good at war in the air, at sea, high technology, space. We don't want to get in the ground war in Asia. And if we lose Taiwan. And people are like, and the Philippines decides to cut. We're our only choices. There aren't any that you know. The Indonesians don't want to work with us, and they're kind of they don't like to make a choice. So we're going to be in a really bad way. And so a lot of people who are arguing against defending Taiwan are kind of like, oh yeah, we'll just draw a line and things will go on as normal. And that's not going to happen. The only thing I would say though, and why I'm so obsessed about it, is because I don't think it's a cut and dried issue. It's a hard call. I think it's like a 70-30. And what's so critical though is to make the costs and risks of doing it for Americans drive that cost down. And that's why I'm so obsessed, because there's a lot of people out there, including a lot of Republicans who say, hey, Bridge, you're so, you know, linear and unbalanced and extreme. You know, yeah, we can keep doing stuff in Europe, in the Middle East and Africa. No, that's not right, because if the, if we don't make the choice, we're going to make it harder to do that thing. And, you know, for Taiwan, we're going to have less fewer forces, fewer. It's they're going to be poorly postured and it's going to make it much harder for us and, and more likely we lose. And so this argument for balance as if we can like continue operating the way it was, is, a, is delusion, it's not grappling with reality. And again, I think people are starting to get that, um, but there's, you know, people, old habits die hard. Well, how much of that is a downstream effect? Because, you know, I mean, look, I, I haven't been around forever. I'm certainly not a foreign policy or defense expert like yourself, but, you know, you look at what's happened in the last six months with the retreat in Afghanistan, leaving Americans there, the, the takeover by the Taliban, the embarrassment that was our exit from Afghanistan. And then immediately you look at Russia pushing up against Ukraine. You've got China with, with I think, very provocative actions on almost a weekly basis towards Taiwan. You got to believe it's interconnected, right? I mean, this is this can't be happening in a vacuum. Oh, no, I don't I don't think so at all. And I mean, I, you know, I thought that I thought the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the right decision, but I thought it was catastrophically handled. And I think we have a, a right to a better way of doing it for paying three, three and a half percent of our income every year. Um, you know, this is what they're supposed to do. But I mean, look, I, I, to be candid, I think, you know, if you're Xi Jinping or you're Vladimir Putin and you're thinking when's when's the right time to pull the trigger, you know, you're probably looking at at the, you know, how things are, right? And how the US government is, is behaving right now. And you're saying this could be my lucky day, you know, because if you 
if you're thinking, well, you know, the Americans are, they're finally, you know, and this is what we're trying to do when I was in the Pentagon, you know, trying to shift towards more of a focus on China. A lot of those things take 10 years or more to get into the force, but that could happen late twenties, early thirties. You think, you know, I'm dealing with administration that, that doesn't want to use the military. And it's like, well, you know, I don't want to use the military either, but if you say, Hey, I'm not going to use the military. I'm not going to use the military. I'm not going to use the military. Well, okay. Then <laughs> I guess maybe people take you at face value, you know? And so on the other hand, if you're leaving a, a flying gift basket for Soleimani, they get the message, right? <laughs> well, exactly. And that's my my good my partner and good friend, Wes Mitchell. I mean, he says the nature of the dismount is critical. And the Soleimani thing, you know, it basically said, yeah, we're going to we're, we're, we're going to take us a, a lower posture in the Middle East. But don't get the wrong impression. We will come and give you a massive face shot if, right. you, if you cross us. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, you know, that's the, the way we got to think about it. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it's a, a real possibility, including in the nearer term, in the next few five, six years, even, even sooner. So it, totally well explained in terms of your emphasis on Taiwan, what, if anything, do you think we ought to do about the Ukrainian situation? It's a tough one. Cause we've walked ourselves into a cul-de-sac here rhetorically, like where we we've, we've, I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense for Ukraine to be in NATO or Georgia. I mean, look, I wish the Ukrainians well, I wish the Georgians well, they've, they've, you know, gotten their independence and everything, but like, you know, the job of the United States, American people is not to go out and make sure everybody, you know, we can't do everything. We're not the world's policemen. We got to look after our interests, work with people where we can, but like, you know, I think we kind of lost the bubble in, in, in the post-Cold War era where we're saying we're going to like, it's, it's our job to send the military out to solve every global problem. Like we're, you know, a, a sort of like a humanitarian organization. It's like, look, we can give charity, all these things, but you know, this is ultimately about our Americans willing to die potentially in large numbers for somebody. So, so at the same time, we have an interest in, in, in an independent autonomous Ukraine, right? Because the stronger the Russians are, the more they can press into Europe and cause other problems and just generally be up to no good. So I think the key here you know, I think under the Trump administration, actually, it seemed to net out pretty well, which was, you know, moving forward on arming the Ukrainians, but, you know, not at the, and again, I don't know all the details of, of exactly the, the democracy policy, but I mean, at the end of the day, there wasn't this escalation. What I'm worried about now is it's a lot of high rhetoric, you know, like, hey, this unshakable commitment to Ukraine. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're not willing to back that up. So, I, I think basically what we want is we want to arm the Ukrainians to the extent possible in, in, in a way actually that's as least provocative to the Russians as possible, but actually make them as strong as possible. To, so the Russians face a real deterrent and push the Europeans forward. This has got to be our this has got to be our strategy for Europe going forward because we don't have enough capacity to do both Europe and Asia. Yeah, right. We've got well, to I mean, prioritize Germans Asia. Are doing are doing making pipeline deals with Putin. They might as well exactly. have the game on something like this. Right. No, I mean, the Germans are out of control. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is the thing, you know, President Trump, he would go after them. And in a way, it was like so tough on them that it allowed them like a like a way out. But actually, we should be totally lasered on them, which is these guys are. I mean, they're spe- they're spending nothing and they're the, the Europe's largest economy. If, if they spent more on defense, it would make a huge difference vis-a-vis Russia. And we don't have the capacity. And yet the administration is being easy on them and like giving them right of first refusal. Meanwhile, the polls who are spending a ton on defense and doing their part, we're icing them out. So, I mean, a lot of these things can't be fixed like from one day to the next. But, um, you know, the other thing is like the Russians are bad news. But on the other hand, I think they're going to see a real threat from China over time. And it they're going to like it. it yeah, like that, that that doesn't 
feel like a perfect partnership. Exactly, because there's the direct border where they they fought a war 50 years ago. I mean, they actually fought a war. And then, you know, Chinese influence is spreading into all the areas the Russians consider their traditional hinterland, like Central Asia, Kazakhstan. In, in, in energy space, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so we kind of like need to either promote that or get out of the way of that. And then the Russians, I think at some point are going to have to reckon with that. And that can happen pretty quickly. I mean, the reverse happened in the Cold War when Nixon went to China. Um, and you, you know, you can deal with people that you loathe. I mean, Mao Zedong was an absolute monster, but we had a bigger problem. And I think that's kind of the way we're going to, but the key actually is not to, I, I actually think the Russians may be looking to gain as much as they can. They may anticipate that and they may be looking to gain as much as they can in the near term, particularly under this, you know, in the, this administration and so forth. So it's hard to, you almost, you got to be tough in the West and kind of give them like that. They're not going to gain advantage by pushing too hard and then let the China threat kind of become clearer to them. That's sort of, I think the, the, and then work with others like the Indians and the Vietnamese and the Japanese and the Koreans who also have that view. That's fascinating. I mean, there, so look, this conversation, I think has illuminated a couple of things for me. One is just the strategic importance of making good choices <laughs> and the ramifications that you have, you know, down the line by making bad ones, but also, you know, what we haven't talked about is an investment in our own defense, which, you know, look, I mean, we've spent $6 trillion in the last year and a half, none of which have gone to protect <laughs> this country. Right. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that sort of, isn't there a, a discussion worth having in terms of, of that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of surreal. It's ridiculous that I, mean, I think it was only DOD and, and the Homeland Security Department that didn't get an increase in the president's budget, which is like, and, and you know, the administration has this whole shtick about um, we're going to compete by building better, you know, green energy or like better railroads. And, you know, and it's like, come on. I mean, that's sort of ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like Amtrak okay. and solar panels are going to get it done, Bridge. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I think that's actually how they see it, though. Some of them, not so much at the Pentagon, but they see it as like this competition of systems, as if it's like a popularity contest around the world. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, I mean, it's certainly not how I see it, but I think that's how they see it. You know, wrong way. Who doesn't things. see it like that? China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm always like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, well, you know, you there's the great line, the Trotsky line, you know, you, the re, you may not be interested in the revolution, but it may be interested in you. It's like the Chinese, you may not be interested in the Chinese military buildup, but it may be interested in you. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, they, they're like tripling their nuclear weapons arsenal. It's like, all right. So, I mean, look, my personal again, my preference is like I'd rather spend, you know, if not less, like not spend dramatically more on defense. But if we're not a if we face an international environment, that's really tough. And B, if we're not willing to make those choices that I think you, you, you put your finger on, um, which, are, which are tough to make for political reasons, other law rolling reasons, then we got to increase the defense spending because we don't want to be penny wise, pound foolish in the sense that like, look, if we can deter an attack on, on Taiwan, which we can do, I think, because the Chinese don't want to fail and they, they respect our military. If we invest enough, you know, if we save like, like five billion bucks now and we end up paying five trillion dollars later because we got into war. That's not smart. Right. Um, so I think that's but 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 I but I think your point about choices is the one that I would want to stress. And that I think I think people are getting and Republicans in particular are talking more that like China is we got to focus on this. This is our priority. Um, not that there aren't other threats in the world, but, you know, we don't have infinite resource. Actually, I was thinking the other day and I think relevant to you, like, you know, it's like a political campaign. You don't have infinite resources. If you do well, you might be able to generate res more resources because people think you have momentum, but like you got to have a campaign plan. 
And you can't just be like, well, I'm going to spend everywhere. And my plan, governor or senator or whatever, is for you to just raise like a ton, infinitely more money. You know, like that's not that's not going to be a good way of being, you know, the general as you've been, you know, like of the plan. Come up a little short in that situation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. That's not you might like look elsewhere. <laughs> Listen, Bridge, what I what I appreciate most about you and your perspective here today is the fact that you've got a nuanced sort of realistic pers- perspective for so many years, for decades, this sort of establishment, deep state foreign policy mind meld didn't have partisan borders. Right. It was basically the same totally. Republican yeah. and Democrats. And now I think there are more people like you who are looking at the world trying to figure out, all right, if we get it, if we get our chance and our, our hand on power, what do we do differently? Which, listen, I don't think there's ever a better time to have that conversation. We've got you know a couple of elections coming up in the next three years. If we're going to do it differently, I think there's real opportunity out there. Well, thanks a lot, Josh. That's, that's, I mean, you understand exactly what I'm trying to do. And I mean, I try to start from like the principle of like, well, what's in the you know enlightened interest of the American people? And that's, you know, we got to, if we have to change, we have to change. But I think as you, I mean, the blob is like uniquely insulated as a political actor from from democratic accountability because you know founders set up the foreign policy to be largely controlled by the executive branch so there's one elected official and so you know unlike i think a lot of domestic issues where people are you know rehashing stuff i mean the blobs including putative, you know notional republicans and scare quotes kind of yeah thing. right you can like you know they're like they're just coasting as if it's 1997 yeah. and it's like Okay, well, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with that substantively, but I also like that's not really your job. You're just, like, I, I feel like my job is to like, you know, if I'm gonna feel good about myself, my job is to like try to come up with a foreign policy, security policy that's like suited to what the American people actually need. Otherwise, like, what are we doing here? I don't know, quite. Uh, it's very well know? said. Very well said. Listen, I got to get you out of here, but I got three big questions that we asked okay. one of our guests. Okay, so the first right. one is, if you can plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? It would be steak medium rare uh, with um, like a Bernays or some kind of like uh, like this uh, mustard sauce they do, I think, in like France and Switzerland, <laughs> truffle fries. And then um, like a Cold Stone used to make this banana ice cream with uh, uh, hot sauce and a soft chocolate chip cookie on top. And then I'd end up like that guy in Monty Python who explodes. <laughs> 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 Well, it does if it's your last day. It doesn't really matter. Exactly. Why not? I know I'm out of here anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good I'm Catholic, so I don't know. That might be suicide. But yeah, anyway, maybe I'll, just, I'll go through the motions. Um, all right. So if you never got into this line of work at all, uh, granted, this is this is taking your life's work. Um, but if you never got into this at all, what do you think you, you'd want to be doing with your life? You know, I actually I was thinking about that. And the depressing thing is that I, I couldn't really come up with something. I actually like I went to law school, but my main legal advice is like, don't take legal advice from me. I tried working at a business one time and my HR person, she gave me the feedback. She's like, you lack raw commerciality. And so I was like, I actually I might be collecting unemployment. Honestly, I, I think I found like the one thing I'm halfway decent at or I, I'm certainly passionate about. So it's so I don't thing. know. Right, it's nice to find that groove early. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what other socially useful things I could offer. <laughs> so good. All right. So our final question goes to motivation. I'm interested in this for you who, who grapples with all kinds of different psychology of world leaders and how they operate. But, but this is the question is what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? And this isn't your typical sort of binary 
uh, thrill of victory, agony of defeat thing. It's the thrill of victory is the, you know, the sunny optimist charging up the hill. You're, you know, always trying to achieve the next summit, essentially. And the agony of defeat person is, is essentially your Michael Jordan character, right? <laughs> somebody, somebody who is so like at some point they experienced a loss and <laughs> it, it, it is, it is, they've ridden it on their back ever since. Right. And it, it's such yeah. a motivating force not to try to experience that again, that that's what drives them. I think I'm a, I think I'm a thrill of victory guy, but I will say I've spent a lot of time studying deterrence, you know, which is basically about getting vengeance on people. So yeah. I've like thought about a lot about this, but I think my, my gut is 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 thrill of victory, which I guess is a little boring. I don't want to sound uh, moralistic because I think you're right about Michael Jordan. I actually think agony of defeat may be a more powerful motivator. <laughs> so, uh, but I I think I'd have to say I'm a I'm a I'm a thrill of victory uh, guy. That's great. That's awesome. Well, listen, Bridge, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. This is incredible insight. Stay in touch. We'd love as world developments unfold to get a, a fresh perspective on some things. Lord knows we're not getting from. Uh, the talking heads in the national security community. Well, it was great to be with you, Josh, and delighted to come back whenever you guys will have me. You bet. Bridge Colby, everybody. Thanks. So this guy, look, he covered a lot of what we've talked about over the last few weeks, although I will say uh, smarter. Yeah, I mean. Much smarter. And and I have to give a lot of credit is you don't get this anywhere else. You don't get this anywhere else. You, You know, typically you'll, if you're watching cable news, it's like, okay, same old politicians are being trotted out. We have people who can actually explain and tell you about the problems that we're facing and and, and in a deep dive in a way that you know what's going on. And that's the point, right? Smug is like the great thing about podcasting is we don't have to go to a commercial break. You know, it's not 30 second sound bites and everybody gets their chance to say something and then, oh, okay, well, now it's on to ads. Right. Right. Like like you can actually, you know, put a little meat on these issues and and take it on, which is like. It's just great stuff. It yeah. Great. And, and this is an area we wanted to, we sought out an expert here. Um, and I got to know this guy through a mutual friend, but he was talking about all the things that we'd been talking about. Right. And, yeah. But, but yeah. none of us have been in the middle of the foreign policy and arena like this guy has clearly in a defense posture like this guy has. So he knows what he's talking about. We all have our suspicions, but I think there was a lot there that was confirming what we've been talking about for the last now six months or so. And getting it straight from the horse's mouth. Yep. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know how much <laughs> Smug loves horses. Right. That's <laughs> what we do here. So another banger of an episode. Gentlemen, we, 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 we got to sing. We got to dance. We had our games. We had a great interview. Uh, so until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.